Nick Weiler. I'm Erica Senior. Welcome to Brains and Bourbon Shots, Shots. where we Shots. just... <laughs> uh, on uh, Shots is our short-form uh, version of Brains and Bourbon, and we're just going to chat with a bunch of different, really interesting scientists, graduate students, postdocs, about who they are, why they do science, and what it is they do. Today, we have on the show Matt Figley. Hi, guys. So what we'd love to ask you first is just how did you come to do science? Tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and what your initial exposure to science was and why you decided you wanted to, to be a scientist. I'm in my fourth year mm-hmm. um, in the neuroscience program here at Stanford, and I am in Aaron Gittler's lab. Um, and we are interested broadly in neurodegenerative diseases. So I can tell you a little bit about that. But I got interested in science not until I was in college, actually. So I grew up in western Pennsylvania, about a 45-minute drive northwest of Pittsburgh, PA, which is a great city if you haven't been. And I went to college at the University of Pittsburgh. And it was there that I first had my um, first research experience. So I I would say in high school that I had kind of a taste of chemistry and biology, like a little bit. But Mm -hmm. really at Pitt, I had my first taste of, you know, this is science and science science process. What was this taste? Um, I had a class on, it was actually the introduction to neuroscience Mm -hmm. um, with uh, Professor Ed Stryker. And it was just uh, revolutionary, actually. It was great. Did you guys do experiments or was it just learning about the brain? Yeah, it was mostly... um, Experiment-based, but we weren't actually doing experiments. I it was see. kind of learning about the experimental process. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. What was it about the class that really compelled you, that made you I think to... I think it was just kind of he really brought out the fact that, you know, experiments were kind of an, an active process where there was a, a learning and so much, that so much of it was a mystery and that that was – it was so exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you remember what your first experiment was? My first experiment? Oh, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say at what point I could really claim ownership of an experiment. I'd, uh-huh. I'd say that probably didn't happen until I was here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe in college. My my first lab, we were working on traumatic brain injury, actually, with a, a rat model. Mm-hmm. So we were running rats that had been injured versus control rats and then, you know, seeing how they could perform in a, a water maze task. Uh-huh. And that was kind of the first thing, looking at, um, looking at their memory a couple of days after injury. That was really the first thing I had. I did it with my own hands, I think. Cool. So at what point did yeah. you decide or realize that you wanted to become a scientist for your career? I think later on. So I had I had tried research a little bit in a lab, probably for about a year and a half in undergrad. Um, and I decided that I really liked that, but I wanted to, I really wanted to kind of try something else. So mm-hmm. I, I decided to work kind of to switch fields. And at that time, I was starting to get interested in, in neurodegenerative diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, in diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And so I decided to switch labs. I ended up in a lab that was, the PI was the chief of neuropathology at Pitt. Um, And so it was really there that I got the drive to kind of go to graduate school and to work on these diseases in a more uh, focused manner. Mm -hmm. So is there something in particular about neurodegeneration that got you interested in the field? I don't know. I just, I saw it as a, just a giant problem. Um, luckily, I, I didn't have any family history or mm-hmm. personal reasons, um, but it just seemed like a, a really fascinating and overwhelming problem for the, the country. And And I was starting to see in the literature, and I think a little bit from my lab and undergrad, that there were maybe some overlapping 
scientific problems within mm-hmm. these diseases, so within Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, that maybe there was going to be some overlapping questions. And I thought that might be an interesting thing going going forward in the scientific field. What were these things that you were identifying that you were like, oh, maybe these maybe these things are connected? At the time, there was, and, and still it's something that my lab is pursuing now, not something that I'm working on in particular, but the idea that um, certain proteins can misfold and kind of template the misfolding of other proteins um, and lead to protein aggregation and how these proteins can kind of cross-seed each other and lead to clumping and aggregation and neuronal death within these diseases. What is it that, you were, that you're studying right now? So right now, my lab is interested in two of these diseases. So we're interested in Parkinson's and we're interested in Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, mm-hmm. um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And my project is focused and has been focused for the last two years or so on ALS. Can you explain a little bit what ALS is? Yeah, so ALS is a really, really awful disease. Um, It affects people usually in their, in middle age, so in their, usually in people in their 40s to 60s. -hmm. Um, And what happens is people start having, kind of unexplainably, they'll start having weakness in their hands or in their feet, and that will pretty rapidly spread to very severe weakness and Mm -hmm. paralysis in their arms and legs and complete paralysis and death within very rapid course, so two to five years of onset. Um, It's a really devastating disease. Mm -hmm. And so your lab studies this disease and other diseases in an unconventional way for neuroscience. Can you talk about what your lab uses? Yeah. So our lab is interested in this disease, which affects neurons. Right. So it affects the motor neurons in the spinal cord. Um, That's what leads to paralysis because these neurons are dying. They're sending messages from the brain to the muscles. um, And when they die, the muscles can't contract. And so we actually are taking a unique approach in that some of the processes we actually start in yeast. Um, So we start in baker's yeast, same yeast used to make bread or beer Mm -hmm. or wine. So how do you do that exactly? How are you studying neuron or neurological disorders in yeast? Yeah, that's a great question. So we use yeast as a really simple cell. So yeast have been really well studied over the last 30 years in biology as a very simple cell. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things we know about cell biology and genetics we know from studying yeast. And so we've studied a lot of the, the disease genes that we're interested in from ALS and Parkinson's disease are actually pretty well conserved back to yeast. So the human gene looks a lot like the yeast gene. Mm-hmm. And so that means we can we might be able to learn something about the yeast gene um, that could tell us something about what this gene in humans might be doing. What kind of readouts do you use? So if you put in a mutated ALS gene, how does that affect mm-hmm. the yeast? Yeah. So um, in the past, our lab has looked at Something I mentioned earlier is um, like protein aggregation. Uh-huh. So we know that in ALS, at the end stage of the disease, if you looked in someone who has passed away from the disease, um, you can see that there are these certain proteins that form these big clumps in the motor neurons. Um, and we think that might be related to why these neurons are dying. And so if you take those same proteins um, and you make the yeast, if you design the yeast cells to make way too much of those proteins. What you'll see is those proteins clump together in a really similar way, and also the yeast cells start dying. So there you're just looking at, you know, are the yeast living or dying? And I that's see. a really easy thing to measure in yeast. Uh-huh. As you as you go forward with your experiments, when you look at these results, what do you hope these are going to tell us fundamentally about how ALS works and, and what we can do to, to help people who have this disease? Yeah, it's so it's it's really... 
it's a really hard jump to make, right, from yeast to people. Um, but what we hope to learn is something basic about the cell, about some cellular process that might be regulating what is going on or what is going wrong with the cell when this protein is doing this clumping effect or this aggregation effect. Or in the case of my research, I'm not studying aggregation, but I'm just trying to learn something about what another protein is doing in the cell. Mm -hmm. And so in my research, what, what we did was we took this yeast protein called profilin, and we were interested in profilin because in the summer of 2012, there was a lab in Massachusetts that described um, two families with familial ALS, meaning they had uh, families that had multi-generational ALS. So they had ALS that had been passed on mm -hmm. in, in multiple generations. Um, and they found that mutations in this gene, profilin-1, were causative in that family. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in this gene, and we knew that yeast had one version of this protein, of this gene, uh, profilin. And so we were interested in studying that gene. And so we said, if we remove this gene from yeast, what effect does it have? Uh -huh. um, and the, the answer is, the effect is, if you grow the yeast at high temperatures, if you stress them, the yeast can no longer grow. I see. And so what we could do is we, we took the human gene and we added it back to the yeast that didn't have the yeast gene, and then we could assess if they could grow, mm -hmm. right? So, and then we, we learned that the, the human version could complement the yeast version. Mm -hmm. So it can, it's, it's pretty well conserved. It seems like it's doing a similar function. And then we could look to see, you know, are the ALS mutant proteins, because there was a couple of those mutations that changed the protein. Mm -hmm. We could see, are those mutant proteins, do those result in a loss of function? You know, can the, can the yeast grow now at that higher temperature? like they could with a normal protein. Mm -hmm. so, so that at a very basic level can just tell us something about the, you know, is the protein vastly broken or not? Uh -huh. So something like profilin is expressed in multiple cell types in the brain, correct? Mm -hmm. Yet in ALS, you only yeah. have degeneration of motor neurons. So do you have any ideas to why this particular cell type is sensitive to these mutations, but other cell types aren't? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's something that as a field, as a neurodegeneration field that we're, everyone's grappling with that uh -huh. problem. And I think we're making a little bit of headway with that. One thing we're thinking now, and something that has been something that I've made a little bit of progress on, I think, is we also used yeast to try to learn a little bit more about profilin biology. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we took yeast that didn't have profilin, and those yeast grow okay at normal temperatures. And we took a library of about 4,800 other yeast strains, and all of those yeast strains lack an individual gene, mm -hmm. a different individual gene, and all of those grow okay. And if you mate those together so that they lack profilin and they lack another individual yeast gene, then you can see which ones can't grow. Mm -hmm. And that might give you some idea about which genes are genetically interacting with profilin. And you could say, okay, well, what, just what pathways maybe, what cellular... Uh -huh functions may be involved? Like, what is profilin doing in the cell? So then the idea is that profilin is expressed everywhere, but in motor neurons, there may be genes that are only expressed in motor neurons, and that interaction is what is causing the degeneration. Perhaps. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that could be it. Or we could maybe say something about, so what we found in this yeast screen, we were really surprised about, is we found a lot of RNA and RNA protein granule genes. Um, okay, so, so what's a is, protein granule? Yeah, okay, so... <laughs> So um, RNA protein granules 
are these RNA protein conglomerations mm -hmm. that form usually during times of stress. Okay. Um, and so yeast have these granules. All, all cell types will form these granules under times of stress, basically transient stressors, heat shock, oxidative stress, these kinds of stressors. And when the stress is removed, these granules or kind of these dense structures will dissolve. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what's, what's really interesting about neurons is that they have these granules constitutively present in axons. Mm -hmm. And so they use granules of similar composition all the time to transit messenger RNAs along axons because messenger RNAs need to get translated at the synapse. Uh -huh. And so we think that neurons might be a unique cell type in that they already kind of have this granule setup. So they might be already sort of on the edge of this stress response. Oh, I see. So they're sort of always ready for any stressful event, basically. Yeah, so I think it's sort of like a very early hypothesis. Uh -huh. But we're coming to find, and we're interested in this, we call them stress granules. Uh -huh. um, and they've been pretty well studied in a variety of cell types, including yeast. But what we found with profilin in this in the screen that we did in yeast is that a lot of these stress granule genes are coming up as being interacting with profilin. Mm -hmm. And so because of this genetic interaction, we made the hypothesis that perhaps profilin was actually present in these stress granules. I see. So then without profilin or with a mutant profilin, then you can't get the transport of the RNA down to perhaps that, the Perhaps that could be a hypothesis. Yeah. Uh -huh. So what we found was that actually profilin is a component of these stress granules uh -huh. in a variety of cell types and in neurons. So what's been the most sort of challenging or, or frustrating thing about, about trying, to, trying to understand this system and do the, actually do this research? Yeah, so I think the most challenging thing so far has been just trying to pick an interesting and important research question, hmm. mm -hmm. right? Because there's so many questions and there's so many things that you could go after. So this paper came out in the summer of 2012, and as part of requirements for the PhD, you have a qualifying examination, right, in sometime in your second year. Um, so I had been working on another project, and um, this uh, profilin paper was published. And we were really excited because this came out and we said, we knew absolutely right away. There's one profilin in yeast. There's some really, we could do some things here. Like there's uh -huh. some things we can learn about profilin using yeast right away. You know, and this is really ripe for a project. Like we could, it's right there. But even with that, even with knowing like there's something here, I spent a long time, you know, before we even had something to really sink our teeth into. Mm -hmm. So you actually started your PhD at a different university, and then your PI got a job at Stanford, and you moved with your lab to Stanford. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? It sounds pretty stressful, and how did you decide that you were going to go ahead and make such a big move? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I actually started graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I was there for about a year and a half. So I ended up in Aaron Gittler's lab, and I had joined Aaron's lab, um, rotated there, joined it and had been there for a couple months when Aaron, you know, told the lab that he had got this offer to move, and it was really great, and he was pretty excited about it, and he was going to move, and, you know, was going to make the accommodations for everyone if they wanted to move, and, you know, if they wanted to stay, that was fine. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a pretty good while trying to decide if that was going to be the move or not, and ended up talking to a lot of different people about what the, what the right decision would be. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone had a different input, and everyone was very supportive, I think. But in the end, I think I decided that at that point, I was mostly done with classes. And mm. really, I was just, it was just about the lab and about the science at the time. You right. know, and I was pretty excited about 
the lab, you know, I had joined out of the three rotations I had done. It was the one I was pretty excited about, and I think it was a good, a good decision. Although I do miss Philadelphia; it's a good city. Yeah. I mean, can you identify a moment in graduate school when you were doing science or doing research um, about the project you wanted to do, and you just thought, "Yes, this is so cool. This is this is why I'm doing this." Yeah. So we had the results from the screen, right, and the profilin screen, and we were seeing all these genetic interactions coming up with stress granules, right? And I made this kind of hypothesis, and it was, I think it was grounded in some, it was a good guess, right, that mm -hmm. the profilin might be in stress granules. But I did that experiment and, you know, found, saw it was there, and it was just like, it was so exciting because it, it just opened up a hundred different questions. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden one experiment led to, you know, a hundred more. Uh -huh. And that was just so thrilling. And I think that was just... That's really is what that's been keeping me coming back for the next, you know, year and a half yeah. since that happened. And I think that's really hooked me. And I think, you know, up until then it was I enjoyed it, you know, and I liked coming in every day and I, I liked what I did. But then after that, it's been really good. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see how long I can ride that. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think I think it's going to be for a while. Yeah. So do you so, where do you see yourself we'll staying see. in science? Is that the plan? Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh -huh. I like what I'm doing now. Um, I, if I could do this for, if I could do what I'm doing now and do that, you know, as a sustainable career, I would, I would do that. Uh -huh. We'll see if that's something I can do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it is. I think, you know, I think everyone that's kind of doing a PhD right now is kind of grappling with the same issues of, you know, is this a sustainable career? Can I make yeah. a living doing this, even though I love it, you know, just because of the financial climate. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I do, I love it for now. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, so, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> One question. I, I, but I, I, love, I am passionate about it, so we'll see. That's yeah. great. I love that the um, the most challenging thing has been that there are just so many questions and trying to figure out which one to pursue. And the most exciting thing is that there are so many questions and you're just trying to figure <laughs> out which one to pursue. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's so yeah, true. Well. <laughs> it's both. It is both. Yeah, right? it is both. It is, it is both the challenge and the joy, which is that there's so much to know and so little that we already know. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think we've got to stop, but thank you so much for talking to oh, us. Oh, thanks for having me. I this appreciate it. This has been really fun. Yeah, cheers, guys. Cheers. cheers. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. 